Well, so you know how when you're watching TV and the prescription drug commercials come on? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, it's just a left turn there. You know, so you're watching you know, prescription drug commercials, and they always include that kind of voiceover about side effects. And, you know, yeah, it's like this half hour long, you know, a thousand word little essay there at the end. And it's almost funny because it's, it's superimposed on all these like smiling, happy people whose lives were changed by this medicine. And then, and then the, the voiceover comes on as like side effects may include liver failure, violent mood change, paralysis, zombification, and sudden death. And you're, you're like... Like, wait, what? <laughs> and it's like, you know, oh, you know, so take this medicine, your life will change, and call your doctor if any of your limbs swell up and fall off. <laughs> and you're like, but they look so happy. <laughs> and of course, it's because, you know, the, the drug company, of course, wants to downplay the risks, and they're required by law to include that, <laughs> that little side effect thing, but they want you to focus, like, pay no attention to the side effects, focus on the happy, smiling people. And now compare that, I think this, it's interesting to compare that to efforts in recent years to kind of ramp up the warnings on cigarettes. You know, the cigarette warning labels? <laughs> yeah, like, subtle, right? <laughs> like, it, it, used to, it used to be things like, you know, like, like smoking, you know, like... Cigarette smoke contains carbon monoxide, but apparently no one knew what that meant, and so now they're just like, okay, actually, it can cause a slow and painful death. Stop smoking, um, and then you know now now I guess they even include like pictures in, in case that that's you know in case you need like a visual, you get like this is your lung on smoking, and and um, really makes for some nice nice packaging, and so you know <laughs> subtle, right? But you know of course the difference between drug commercials and smoking labels. Because, of course, either way, the company just wants to sell you their stuff. But the government kind of stepping in with some laws and regulations. The government with the drug companies is like, you know, this is good, but we want you to be an informed consumer. Here's the risks. Whereas the smoke in the government's like, this is going to kill you. Please stop. <laughs> well, in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, God has some warning labels for us. Some warning labels. And it's not the prescription drug kind where God's like, hey, just so you know, there's some side effects here for you to know about. But rather, as we come to our text in 1 Corinthians this morning, this is the, the cigarette kind of warning label. This is God interrupting us with a not-so-subtle warning of saying, like, this leads to death. And so this morning, as we, as we approach the Bible, God's word to us. Uh, I, I want to come to this text with some, the, the sober weight of the warning. And also, and also, right along, alongside the warning are these, is this amazing gospel promise and hope. And so I, I, I want to come with the weight of the warning and also the weight of hope for sinners. And so the, the big idea of, of the message, as we look at, at 1 Corinthians 6 here, the, the, the big idea is this. Talk about warning labels. Unrepentant sin. That, that means violating God's will and saying, nope, forget it, I'm living my way. Unrepentant sin leads to everlasting death. But Jesus is in the business of rescuing sinners. 
That's the, that's the warning label and the hope that we have right next to each other in this text. Unrepentant sin leads to everlasting death. So wake up and pay attention. And also, oh, know this, Jesus is in the business of rescuing sinners. And so you qualify. And so, so my, my hope, and I, I believe God's desire for us, is that as we look at these things in his word, that we wouldn't just know them, but that we would feel them, both the weight and the joy. Uh, so, so before we start, before we look at the text, I, I want to pray, and I want to ask for God's help. So if you could just pray with me real, real quickly. Uh, Lord, I feel... I feel the weight of these things, of your, of your warnings and your promises here in these verses. And so help us, help me as I speak to be clear and helpful and faithful. And help us as we listen to love your word and to love your son and to run after the salvation that he offers us. We pray this in his great name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today, so we're, we're in this, this uh, series in 1 Corinthians uh, that we've, we're kind of camping in all year, taking little excursions here and there, but we're back in 1 Corinthians now in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. That's what we're going to be zeroing in on. But what I want to do, I, I want to back up actually and read, and read actually starting in verse 7 to, so we can get some of the context because uh, last week we were doing some different things. I want to remind us of the context. So Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's addressing all these problems in the Corinthian church. There's a lot of them. There's there's division, there's squabbles, there's infighting, there's arrogance. And in chapter 6, Paul's been addressing these issues of major immorality being tolerated and celebrated in the church, um, sexual immorality. And, And then two weeks ago, Pastor George walked us through the next couple verses in chapter 6 where Paul reprimands them for pursuing each other. There's, there's lawsuits being lobbed here and there in the church, and they're squabbling over, like, my money and my rights and taking each other to court. And so I just want, I want to pick up at the end of that because that just flows right into today's text. So here it is, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 7. It says, to have lawsuits at all, and he's talking about in the church suing each other, is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And can I just like parentheses, like what a statement that is? What a flipping the tables on our expectations. Like he says, Paul's like, why not rather just be wronged? And it's because we follow a crucified Lord who calls us to lay down our rights and take up our cross, and you cannot hold both. And so he's looking at these Corinthians and like, you're holding so tightly to your rights, I know you're not carrying your cross. And so he says, but you, Corinthians, you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers, and now, and now here comes the warning. The warning coming after these, this Paul addressing these issues of immorality in the church. The warning, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and the hope. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So sober stuff there, important things that we would see and hear and know. And so, so basically this morning what I want to do is I, I want to walk through those three verses um, basically word by word. It's a list, and we have lots of topics and things. And so I, I just want to walk through it basically word by word. And in verses 9 and 10, what we're going to see is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. And there's really two, two life or death questions that, I, that, that, that we need to answer when we come to this text. The first is, what does Paul mean, and just as importantly, not mean, when he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Like this, if this is a warning from God himself, and the stakes are this high, like we better know, like what does that mean? And then secondly, this, this list of sins, like what, what are these things? Because, of course, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not like there's like, these nine things will send you to hell and nothing else. It's not an exhaustive list. But it is a matter of life and death that we know what he's talking about. And so he says, verse 9, he says, Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That, that, that word unrighteous. Uh, unrighteous means not in a right standing with God. And it's, it's actually, it's a... It's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's the prisoner standing before the judge and the gavel comes down guilty. That, that's what the word unrighteous means. And so he says the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that, that, that phrase, it expands, it maybe expands our vision a little bit of the gospel, what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes we just boil it down to like believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven when you die. But here he, he says it differently with more words and more weight to it. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means everything that Jesus accomplished, all of Jesus' victory over sin and death and hell, everything that he won, his place and power and glory now reigning forever, and you joined to him, him making all things new, a new heavens and new earth, restoration and joy forever. He said, that's the kingdom of God. And he says, the unrighteous don't get in. And so that urgent question, what does that mean? What does that mean? And it's, it's super important here at the outset to, to get this right or else we'll get the whole rest of the warnings and the promise wrong. This status of unrighteous, that guilt in the courtroom, is not just the bad people. Like, like you might think, oh, you know, we're all basically good, but like, let's avoid some of the things on this list, otherwise we'll get on God's bad side. No. The Bible is really clear. The Bible's diagnosis of our condition is that every human being is unrighteous. Like that's our that's our default condition. From conception to grave, we're guilty. From Psalm 51 says, I was born in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me down to my DNA. Romans 3 says, None is righteous. 
No, not one. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. All ungodliness. Everything that doesn't measure up to his perfection. So that, Romans 3.19 says, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is the, this is the bad news of our condition that we're all unrighteous, that that's the default of every person on the planet. We're not in right standing with God. We're all on God's bad side. And baked into our DNA is Adam's sin that ruined us before we ever took a breath. And so, so, this list of sins, as Paul goes on and says, don't be deceived, people who do these things, This list of sins is not what makes you unrighteous. This list is some of the things that unrighteous people do. Let me say that again, because that nuance, the whole gospel hangs on that nuance. Hear me clearly. Doing these things is not what makes you unrighteous. These are the things that unrighteous people do. They're they're not the cause of the unrighteousness, they're the symptom. It's like in the same way, like if you go to the doctor and and, and say, I have a cough and I have a fever and I can't taste or smell anything, the doctor will be like, oh, you've got COVID. Your lack of taste didn't give you COVID. it's, It's evidence that you have COVID, it's the symptom. And so these behaviors that Paul lists, not an exhaustive list, but these behaviors that that Paul lists are not what make people unrighteous because everyone's already unrighteous. We're we're all sick with the same disease. These are the symptoms. And so when Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not saying, watch out, don't do any of the things on this list or you're going to hell. Because we're already going to hell. We've already bought the ticket. We're on the bus. In giving this list of sins, the warning label here is, this is evidence that you are not in right standing with God. These things are evidence that you're on that bus to hell. Wake up. So so this is a real warning. And, and he's saying this to the church people in Corinth, even. Not, he's not just addressing this out to the world in Corinth. He's actually talking to the church, because in light of the seriousness of the sin that, that the church in Corinth is tolerating and celebrating, Paul is laying down this sober warning to those who claim the name of Christ, and he says, if you persist in these things, Corinth, you will prove in the end to be no church at all. And you'll prove that you never knew Jesus, that that he never knew you. The continued ongoing participation in the kingdom of darkness means you're not a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
this, this inheritance of the kingdom of God. It's like you can't, you can't claim citizenship, and I, I'm a son or daughter of the king. I'm a, I'm a member of God's kingdom, but still be living over here, just living in the kingdom of darkness. It's like it doesn't work that way. If you're just li- living over here with no interest in that kingdom of God, it means you're, you're not in the kingdom of God. And so this list that we have here is a diagnostic tool. Like a, like a doctor checking things, asking some questions. So, so this, this is a checkup, even for, for our hearts. Examine yourself. Whether you came in here this morning having never darkened the door of a church in your life, I'm so glad you're here. You, you, you came on, a, on quite a Sunday to get, the, to get this list, but you are here because God loves you and would like you to hear the warning. Or whether you've been in church for 50 years, this is a diagnostic tool to examine yourself, to check your temperature, to get out the stethoscope and listen to your own heart as we go through the list. And so let's look at the list. And in fact, I actually want to start back in verse, verse 8 uh, with, with the word defraud. Uh, because that's the context. Remember, Paul's talking about the lawsuits and everyone clamoring for their money and their rights. And, and he says, and with he says, like, to your shame, you're defrauding people. Um, that, that word, so we're just going to go through kind of word by word here. Look at this list as a diagnostic tool. That word literally means to, to cheat or take away what rightfully belongs to someone else. It, it literally means to rob from, but it has this nuance of robbing by manipulation or deceit on your taxes. From your employer. So easy. So easy. And then in verse 9, he says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. The, the Greek word here is porneia. That, that's, that's the word translated here as sexually immoral, porneia. And we saw this a couple weeks ago in the beginning of chapter 6 that. Um, that the, the New Testament authors do something really fascinating with this word. Because in the broader first century secular context, the word porneia referred specifically to prostitution. But what the New Testament authors did in following Jesus' teaching, they, they, picked, up, they picked up all of this Old Testament prophetic word and packed it into the, this word. Because the old, the old Testament prophets used this kind of sexual immorality language to describe, to describe unfaithfulness to God's covenant, to describe love for things that are forbidden. So they filled it up with that meaning, filled it up with Jesus' ethical teaching, you know, Jesus' teaching of, of heart-level fidelity in marriage, chastity outside of that. And so with this word, the New Testament authors launched into the pagan world a sexual revolution. This, this new way of living that God created sexuality and created the body with dignity and with purpose and that God's design for sexuality is faithful, self-giving love, covenant love of husband and wife, and everything outside of that is porneia. That's how, that's how the Bible, the New Testament, describes this, is, is you have God's created purpose of faithful, 
self-giving covenant love of husband and wife, and everything else is porneia. And so Ephesians 5 says, let there not even be a hint of porneia among you, church. Hebrews 13 says, let that marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge porneia. And so that, that sexual revolution of following Jesus with everything that you are, that, that is a high and difficult calling. Just as countercultural in the 21st century as it was in the first. And in an age and culture like ours where sexuality is synonymous with self-expression and identity, like that, this is a hard pill to swallow. Runs so against the grain of our culture and really against the grain of our fallen, unrighteous human nature. And yet here it is. Jesus saying, follow me. And so the, the question prompted really by, by this one and really by, by all of these is we were just singing that song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And if as we're going through this list, you find yourself in this list, because we can all find ourselves in this list, right? We're all in this list. Hear the voice of Jesus saying these, this hard word, follow me, follow me, because Christ is enough, in fact. And what he calls you to, so countercultural, so, so counter the, the, the way that you're wired, and yet he says, follow me. Put those things to death. I have more for you. And so this, just like all the other words on this list, is a hard pill to swallow, but it is life. Not because doing the right thing is life, but because Jesus is life. And he wants you to follow him this way. So that's so sexually immoral. The next word, the next word really in some ways encompasses all the other words, idolaters. See, idolatry is not bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. No other devotions or allegiances or loves that rank higher than him. You know, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And, and so that, that, means, that means everything else is idolatry. Everything that, every moment you're not doing that is idolatry because you have a higher love. And so the, the, so the sober thing to realize is just take, take stock of your life. Remember, this is the diagnostic checkup. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, every emotion and desire in your being, all your mind, every thought perfectly aligned with his value, all your soul, every fiber of your being, all your strength, every moment, all of your life bent towards that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? 
Has there been one moment of your life that you have done that? We're all idolaters. We're all unrighteous. We're all born wired to love anything and everything more than him. That's what it means to be fallen. It's what it means to be sinful. So here we are on the list again. The question is, you idolater, are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus or are you content to sit over here and be like, yep, I love all my stuff. I'm cool with that. Because it's the unrepentant sin that leads to everlasting death. The next word, adulterers. That means simply unfaithful to your covenant spouse. That the one that you promised before God to have and to hold until death do you part. And the breaking of that covenant through sexual unfaithfulness, through, through porneia breaking in and defiling that covenant, it's a serious thing. It's on the list. And then we come to the next, the next word. This, this is the one everyone's been waiting for, right? This phrase, men who practice homosexuality. This translates two Greek words, two, two Greek words here, malakos arsenokoitos. And this is simply the first century technical terms for same-sex activity. Both active and passive participants, this is just simply the technical terms that Paul is using here. Elsewhere in the New Testament and Old Testament, there's other words to describe this activity. Paul here is just pulling straight technical terms to, for, for all same-sex activity. And so despite, despite modern revisionist attempts to, like, to redefine those words, it just, it just doesn't work because the, the Bible's really clear that homosexual activity, just like heterosexual activity outside of God's created covenant design of husband and wife, that it's porneia, that it's sexual immorality. Not temptation, temptation isn't sin, not attraction, but action. Just like opposite sex sin. A couple important things here. And I, th I, think, I think the most important thing to see here is that this particular sin is not a different category of sin. It's, it's not like this is something worse than the others. This, like, there's these ones, but then there's this one, and this one's taboo. Because too often, I worry, we, we treat this topic like that. We treat this as if it's something worse, but it's not. And in fact, in every single place in the Bible where this topic is discussed, it is always in the context of a broader list of sins. And so it is not different than anything else on this list. Unrepentant greed will send you to hell just as quickly as unrepentant homosexual activity. And frankly, there's probably a lot more danger from that one for many of us. And 
this sin in this list is not one millimeter farther away from the reach of God's grace than anything else on this list. And so you might be, and when I said find yourself in this list, this might be one of the places that you find yourself. And so I, I, I want you to hear clearly and hopefully pastorally the invitation of Jesus to you, the warning and invitation is that God has a design for, your, for you, regardless of the way that you're wired and how you're attracted. God has a design for you, and that design is to follow Jesus. That purpose is to follow Jesus with everything that you are, all of your identity and all of your rights and all of everything laid down to pick up your cross and follow him. That's the invitation. If this, is, if, if this is where you find yourself in this list. And taking up your cross is hard. Just like every other thing in this list of laying down and putting to death what Jesus says, put that aside, I want you to follow me. But here's one of the things. And so this is not different. Hear that please, loud and clear. Not different at all than anything else on this list. The challenge is, of course, the challenge is, is that our culture treats this one differently than the rest of the list. And so that creates a challenge of, of how to be faithful to God's word and how to live faithfully in the world for the good of the world. And so th this one gets, gets harder to navigate simply because of the cultural context that we're in. And so what we're going to do uh, because this, uh, we cannot do justice to this topic and all of the ways that it touches our lives in this message, so we're coming back next week. We're coming back next week to do a message on this topic, like we're doing periodically in 1 Corinthians. Remember back in, back in March, we were in, I think it was chapter 4, and then did, hold on, pause, time out. This raises the, the issue of the sin of Christian nationalism. Don did a message on that. Let's talk about that. Not because that's worse than anything else, but the issue was raised. Let's talk about it. Here we're doing the same thing. The issue is raised. We're going to talk about it. Uh, and so next, so next week, we're going to come back and look at every passage of the Bible that talks about, about this topic to ground us theologically. And then after the service next Sunday is our monthly Grace at the Table Forum, you know, where we, we talk with you know, a couple pastors up here talking through these issues. And so we're going to tackle the practical questions of this topic next Sunday because uh, there's, there's lots of them. In our cultural context, there are lots of practical questions. And so, so even now, if you like questions arise, you can text them. There, there's the number, 443-499-2611. And that, that's like anonymously a way to participate in that form. You can text your questions in. And we'll have pastors here next week talking about those. And the, the, the difficult ones, the thorny ones, the ones you're like, I have no idea how to navigate this. Uh, we might not either, but text us the question anyway. And we want to talk about it. We want when the church should be a place where we can talk about how do we how do we live this out? I'm, I struggle with this. How do I live this out? So we'd love for you to join us next Sunday. Just stick around uh, and join us for that conversation. 
So for now, so we're going to put a pin in that. We're going to keep going in this list because there, there's more in this list, and then there's good news to see. The next, the next word here is thieves. So this is, this is you know, another one of those commandments, thou shalt not steal. And I, I don't know if, if any of you have ever read the, the Westminster Catechism, uh, written kind of in the, in the Reformation days and unpacking all the questions of the faith. And the Westminster Larger Catechism unpacks the different commandments and really fleshes out what they mean, their claim on us. And what the Westminster Catechism says about this eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, uh, is, is quite a doozy. So I, I have the, the, the whole quote here. Listen to this. It's when, so when Paul says, puts thieves in this category, here's what he's talking about. The duties required in the eighth commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between every person. Rendering to everyone his due. Restitution, that means like the giving back, the paying back of goods unlawfully detained from right owners, means make it right if you have something that you shouldn't. Giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Moderation of our judgment, wills, and affections, our emotions concerning worldly goods. A lawful calling. It's like, don't be a bank robber. Frugality. Don't live beyond your means. Avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and debts or other like engagements. And an endeavor, listen to this one, an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and well-being of others as well as our own. All of that in thou shalt not steal. And that last one really hits me hard, to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and well-being of others as well as our own. To live for the good of others is part of the thou shalt not steal commandment. The next word is perhaps even more than the topic of homosexuality, the most respectable sin on this list in our, in our culture. The most respectable and acceptable. Because uh, this, this word has to do, again, hearkening back to the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment of thou shalt not covet. This word simply means desiring more than I have. Which is practically the American dream, right? Desiring more than I have. Every commercial saying, want me, buy me, you need me for that happiness, that, that, that can of that Coca-Cola commercial, open happiness, you want me, buy me, and then you'll be fulfilled. Like our entire economic system is built on coveting. This is the most acceptable sin on this list. And listen again to the Westminster Catechism. I, I, unfortunately, I don't have the quote this time, but it's a little shorter. The Westminster Catechism says this, the duties required in the Tenth Commandment are two things, a full contentment with my own condition and such a charitable frame of soul towards my neighbor. In other words, full contentment 
with my own condition and full love for my neighbor so that all my inward desires further his good. Whoa. Full contentment, my own condition, full love for neighbor so that all of my desires further his good. And you know, so often we think of coveting and, and envy. You know, we're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So often we get it backwards and we rejoice at those who weep when bad things happen to them, like, ha, I win. And we, and we weep when others rejoice because we want what they have. So evil, so evil, so common. Greed. Take that stethoscope of the word, put it to your heart, it's there. We're in this list. And then the, the next one's kind of, kind of move, I can move through these more quickly, drunkards. That's not, the sin, that's not drinking alcohol. Jesus turned water into wine. He, he, he went to a, part, a, a lame party and turned it awesome. It's not talking about drinking, but drunkard, relying, reliance on alcohol, given over to intoxication, where al- using alcohol to change your state of mind, that's drunkard. Reviler, that's a bit of an old-fashioned word, um, but it means social media. <laughs> the, the, the word reviler means injuring another's reputation by insulting. Social media, Twitter. Twitter exists for this purpose, to revile one another. And the last is swindler, which literally means violent robbery. Unless you think that finally there's a, at long last a word here that you don't qualify for. Remember James 4, when, when James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, and so you murder. And even if you're not going out killing people, Jesus said anger in your heart, that folly at your brother, as judgment comes on that too, as we see what other people have and we want it and we resent them for it, swindling. So the reality is you can find yourself in this list, probably many things on this list, maybe most things on this list. Which is why verse 11 lands with such spectacular good news. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. In other other words, and this, Paul says, used to be you. And you know, I, we need to we need to ask again. What does that what does that mean and not mean? But first, can we just linger on the wonder of that? That every single one of us, when we look in the mirror, you can see this list of sin. Maybe most of the things on this list. And if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins. The declaration over you, 
even as you struggle and fight against these things in your life, even though you keep tripping and falling back into them, the declaration over your life is, this used to be you, and it's not you anymore, because God himself does not see you like this anymore. You have a new identity and a new name and a new citizenship. This used to be you, but it's not anymore. And so just as in everything else in the Christian life, here we see that the calling to follow Jesus means to start living out of a new identity, a, a, new, set, a new name and a new set of words that describe me. It's, it's to start to, to live like God says I really am. Because the reality is, because he says you were, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We're going to talk about those words in a minute. That, that the, the reality is, is that every single day I fall flat on my face back into the mud. Even as a believer, even as someone who loves Jesus, I still struggle with this list. Because, again, down to my DNA, this, is who I, this list is who I am. So it says you were, you were washed, and then just like, you know, if your, your mom gave, you know, your little kid, your mom gave you a bath, cleaned you up, put on your Sunday best, and you went out like splash right into the mud puddle. And that's us every day. Back into the mud puddle. The, the church is a hospital for sinners, and we are all continually relapsing. And yet the wonder of salvation is this isn't you anymore. God has done something in you. And so what used to be me living out of my identity, and this is who I am, this is how I'm wired, now I'm living out of a new identity. And I keep falling back there, and I keep slipping and stumbling back here, but this new identity is an anchor. It's what Jesus has done for me. And so Paul gives us three words here, washed, sanctified, justified. It says, this used to be you, but you were washed. So the picture of here I am in my, in my sin, in the mud, and the king of glory took me by the hand and picked me up and cleaned me off, and all of the filth and shame of my life washed away, new royal clothes, a new name, and brought to sit at the table with the king's family. And the great news is, so that, that's, that's salvation. That's what has happened to you. This is the uh, objective new identity, is you have been washed by the blood of Jesus. My sin was once as scarlet, now it is white as snow. I am, I am new, I am made new, I am made clean. And the amazing thing about the blood of Jesus, to cleanse me from my sin, is that every time I fall back into the mud, there is now fresh mercy and a new change of clothes. You were washed, and you were sanctified. That word sanctified doesn't mean 
that you were all fixed up and now you're a better person. It means you have now been set apart for God and you belong to him now. Or once I was just in my mess and in my sin, the book of Ephesians says, without, without hope, without God, now I belong to Jesus. I belong to him. I am his and he is mine and he holds me in the grip of grace. That's what it means to be sanctified. I belong to Jesus now. And that has some ethical implications. If I belong to Jesus, I'm now supposed to follow him and live like it. But just in the same way that, that these, this list of sins is not what makes you unrighteous, cleaning up your act is not what makes you sanctified. What makes you sanctified is Jesus bought you. You belong to him now. And this last word, justified. Justified. This, this word turns the whole list inside out because it, you, it's hard. you can't really see it in English, but in the Greek, uh, justified is literally just the verb form of the word righteous. So it's like, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you were righteousified. That's, basic, that's basically the word in Greek. You were made righteous. The unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God, but good news in Jesus, there is righteousness. There is a right standing with God available for all who will call on him, for all who see their sin and see their mess and say, I need a savior, Jesus. You are my savior. You died for me. You live for me. And the verdict changes because the guilty verdict that I'm due falls on Jesus instead. On the cross, he takes my sin and my punishment. He takes my shame and my filth. And a great exchange occurs where I get his life and his obedience, his perfection, his right standing, his accomplishments all get credited to my account. And I get to, me, sinner though I am, get to link arms with Jesus and ride his coattails all the way to glory. Not because I cleaned up my act, but because in Christ, the word spoken over me is forgiven, not guilty, righteous. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but now in Christ I am righteous, and everything that is his is now mine. And that's, that's what the, the last two phrases mean. If I, I can have the worship team come says that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means you are now united with him. He has reached out and taken hold of you so that everything that is his is now yours. Kind of like picture, it's sort of like, you know, in a, in a wedding, in a marriage. There, there is a reason the church is called the bride of Christ, that he loves us as a, as a husband loves his wife because to say that I'm justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ means I get his name, I get, I get his bank account, <laughs> I get his love, I get his promises, it's all mine. In Christ, I'm united to him.
And last is by the Spirit of our God, empowered. So the, the, the wonder here, the very, the very end of, of this, the, little, the last little blast of hope in verse 11 is that in this struggle against these sins, not only am I forgiven and cleansed, purified, justified, but I now have new power. I now have Jesus alive and living in me by his spirit. And so following Jesus is no longer just me trying to muster up, trying to clean up my act. It's the spirit helping me. It's the spirit again and again communicating the love of Christ to my soul and fixing my eyes on Jesus, helping me walk. And when I stumble, picking me back up. And this is, this is the life of a believer, to follow Jesus empowered by the Spirit. And so as we, as we just kind of take a step back here and, and look at this, this, this list that we find ourselves in, and we are all guilty, we are all unrighteous, and yet the good news is that I find his power is enough to break and remake my hard heart His blood is enough to cleanse and purify every sin. And where I see my mess, and I see in that list all the ways I don't measure up, what God sees now is that Jesus paid it all. All of it. So if we can stand, I, I, I want us to, to, sing, to sing that hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. My encouragement to you is sing this with faith. Maybe even for the first time to sing it with faith. To say that this sin does not need to define me anymore because Jesus paid it all. So Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that you are a savior enough for sinners like us. And there is nowhere, no hole that we can dig ourselves into that your grace cannot find us, that your power cannot make us new. And so, Lord, as we help us now by your spirit to turn our attention from the list of our failures to now see that list nailed to the cross, paid in full, and we are free. Help us, Lord, to sing with faith. You paid it all, and we are free. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.